Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. And my name's Sam. Joining us today is Ashley Brandt. He's a partner at the law offices of Tucker and Ellis. We're going to talk a lot about the business of beer, specifically the three-tier system. We're going to talk about the direct consumer uh, shipping movement. And we're going to talk about a uh, very hot topic at the moment, IP theft and marijuana too. Definitely, definitely going to touch on some drug laws as well, which I'm kind of stoked about. Yeah, let's get high and heavy. Ooh. Ashley, welcome to Heavy Hops. We're so glad to have you today. Awesome, guys. It's good to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of really exciting topics today about uh, different different worlds of the alcohol industry, the three-tier system, and different uh, movements that have occurred or maybe been exaggerated as a result of the pandemic. But I think uh, I want to. I would like you to introduce yourself a little bit uh, to uh, to our audience, um, who you are, and you know why was beer and alcohol something that you that was interesting to you, apart from the flavor and the effect. Oh, and the effect, <laughs> De- definitely. <laughs> Put those two aside. It's uh, no no regulator likes to hear that the effect is is anything that people might want to drink <laughs> liquor for. <laughs> Now, I, I am I'm an attorney here in Chicago. I work at the law firm at Tucker Ellis, and I specialize in alcoholic beverage law, which which deals with a whole panoply of fun and and interesting topics. Uh, everything that a regular business has to deal with, laid on top of a regulatory scheme that is that is it doesn't know which way it's going because people can never wrap their heads around the puritanical streak of of not wanting to to agree that you know. It has some effects and people might want to drink it for those effects and you know, to the idea that we want to foster business and this thing makes so much money for the government by way of taxes that they refuse to, to really uh, come together on an idea about, about what a common sense regulation would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, oh, sorry. So I, I got into to it by, by virtue of, of having an interest and having friends who were already brewing and already dealing with things and then I had a few opportunities at the places I worked with to get involved with some larger, uh, larger manufacturing companies, uh, people that made the the big spirits that sit on the back of bar shelves, and they needed someone to help with the regulations and someone to help with the trademarks and someone to really get down and dirty and learn what they needed to know in terms of selling across different markets and different states and and around around the world and. I was in the right place at the right time and had had a young man's interest in or a young person's interest in in wanting to to learn something fun. And so it was it was a lot of a lot of late nights and reading and it still is a lot of late nights and reading but it I never lose interest in it. I I always I always enjoy seeing what what people are changing in this this day and age not just because of covid but but because of an opening of restrictions and I think the the boom in craft there are so many different things happening that these statutes are changing constantly, and it's just amazing to watch it happen. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's let's set up this conversation a little bit and get into because the the way that alcohol moves and is sold in this country is pretty unique compared to other um, other consumer products. Um, specifically, we have a three tier system 
uh, where the breweries make the beverages or there are companies that uh, own or operate a number of different breweries and they sell those beers to a distributor, the middleman who uh, then sells that, uh, that product to retailers, be it the bars, the restaurants. Um, and today we're seeing a uh, proliferation of online stores, uh, which is a little different than other products. In some states, you can, as a brewery, sell directly to restaurants, which is something we have in in Illinois. Some states we don't. There's a lot of, there's a bit of variation from state to state. Um, can you lay out a little bit about uh, how this uh, system came about to be in the first place and how and why it sort of survived in this uh, in this manner to this day? Absolutely. So this is this is a fun, uh, you know, a fun course in in how and why we we have that three tier system. It dates back to the time before prohibition, when what was going on was a, a desire to to sort of regulate alcohol and make sure you could tax it, and then also try and keep undue influence out of out of bars because there were there were things that people call it uh, an, an evil, and one of those evils was what what was known as a tied house where the brewery actually owned the bar and basically rented everything to the barkeep supplied the barkeep with the beer and the barkeep's job was to sell it and I, from from the historical records we have you know a lot of people say these places were nuisances it, it, they did a lot of stuff they, they they were places that you would go on your work break you would cash your paycheck there you would have your lunch there uh, they were meeting halls and they performed a lot of functions but in telling the tale of why we have a three-tier system, the, the major ill that people focus on was that they proliferated drinking and weren't inclined towards promoting temperance because you know, Barkeep makes money by, by selling more beer, which, which pays, pays the rent. So Prohibition came along, and then when we repealed Prohibition, no, no one wants to, wants to get into the, the, the nitty-gritty of it, but Nelson Rockefeller was still around and had a commission that put uh, put a few minds together and he wanted that commission to issue a report. The report still exists, by the way. There's even a, a policy center that still publishes it if you want to get a copy of it. And the the report was basically their way of, of stigmatizing alcohol and saying, hey, we need serious control. Here's how in other, other areas they control it. One of the methods is um, this three-tiered system Another method is, you know, what's called a control state, which basically just means that the the state acts as the distributor in the three-tier system. And that policy memo got a lot of play and a lot of states decided to go ahead and adopt its recommendations as, as the method for how liquor is produced, distributed, and sold to consumers. And the justification that we get down down the line even today is still that that somehow this is this is a necessary system that keeps temperance in line although courts have consistently struck down temperance as as a serious you know a serious consideration um it's basically a mechanism that evolved because it was easy to collect taxes that way when you had a world of just paper and needing to have records and you just have two parties exchanging things, they could kind of fudge it. But if you have three parties exchanging documents down the line, you can double check against each other. 
and you as a regulator are able to to make sure that those those records match up. So taxation played a big part and still does play a big part in in the ease in which the system allows for us to verify records and collect taxes. But the the big gist for for why it exists and people people's citation and their their historical understanding is always, you know, they press for this idea that they don't want tight houses to come back, which is they don't want the the undue influence of manufacturers on retailers because they're worried that that would create create a program that you know probably increases prices or proliferates alcohol but the world has changed so much right i mean we have retail stores now and packaged goods stores that sell more than spirits a lot of people buy their beer at the grocery store a lot of people don't necessarily go to bars to to have all the the convivial relationships that they have um so there are there are many justifications for sort of saying well maybe we ought to rethink this system and you know there are there are interesting interesting parallels with cannabis where we have seen now a few states come up with cannabis systems that cut out the distributor tier and uh, allow mix of ownership and uh, you know to a certain extent even even complete vertical integration between the retailers the dispensaries and the growers so I think the advent of cannabis may actually turn into a model for leading us away from this three-tiered system, but time will tell. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's kind of ironic, the uh, the devil's lettuce, which has been just taboo for so long, is now potentially the the drug that's going to push alcohol towards that's a more it. modern system. That's... Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> And, and the taxes are better. I mean, government makes way well. Yeah, yeah. by 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 way of volume, they don't make more money. But but by 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 sheer by sheer virtue of of the amount of tax collected off every dollar of of cannabis, it's it's definitely a better money maker. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, we hear about in the with regard to the tier system as well too, is that. Uh, large producers can have undue influence over their distributors too, uh, specifically in some cases in reference to houses that contain AB. Um, and I believe in some states, AB can actually have an ownership stake in that in the distributor as well. Um, how does this work within or not work within the framing of the three-tier system to be, uh, as it's outset to be? So, so there, there are states that basically allowed for AB and, and other large houses back in the day to go ahead and have ownership. And there are still some states where it exists. Many of those states over the past 10 to 20 years have gone ahead and either forced AB to sell off. I would just pick AB because everybody would like to pick on AB. Um, as, have either forced AB to sell off their interest in those distributorships or limited them to never having more than what they had. You know, at the time a law was passed to stop that from happening. Uh, you know, in, in Illinois, we had a, a big fight over the need for AB to divest from the few distributorships it still had. In Ohio, uh, you know, they still own a few of them, but the law now says that they can't they can't get any more. And many states 100% kept with the line and said, "Look, you're you're a manufacturer. We're not going to let you we're not going to let you have that interest." And and undue influence is the correct term. You know, we we have we have another set of laws in this country and around the world called antitrust laws that are meant to to try and protect 
uh, the consumer from the effects of that undue influence and businesses. But, you know, many of those impacts were meant for the consumer. Um, and these laws and that undue influence share a lot, a lot in terms of their desired effect with antitrust laws, which, which are all geared towards making sure that the monopoly doesn't happen or the undue influence doesn't occur to, to raise prices or to hinder the retailer in his business as well. I mean, imagine if, if you know, the retailer is told, look, you can only sell my beer and you can't buy anything else. You know, the, the question is, does the three-tier system protect that? Or if we had actual laws, and we do have other laws that say you can't do that, <laughs> um, and we have antitrust laws as well, is, you know, is the three-tier system by, by virtue of, of being a law accomplishing that, or is the three-tier system accomplishing it in a different way? And I, I think the answer is the three-tier system is accomplishing it in a different way by, by keeping that middle tier free and clear of ownership and from from retailers and from from distributors uh, so that you actually have the impact of lessening and keeping undue influence out of out of the marketplace um, but my 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 question always comes back to well you know if, if we don't think the law works is is it worth having the law or if we think you know all we need is to pass a law that says hey we we don't want this to happen um, why do we go the extra step of saying, well, we, we have a law that says this shouldn't happen, but we're also going to do this other thing, which, which keeps you as a manufacturer from, from owning these interests in these other, other parts of these, of these tiers. Um, so, so undue influence hits it on the head, but I, I, I don't know what's accomplishing the undue influence, right? Is it, is it the fact that we have the laws that say you shouldn't exert undue influence and talk about what that undue influence looks like and, and tells you how it's prohibited? Or, or is it really that we also have this integrated system of prohibitions on ownership that we can actually enforce, that the regulators can enforce, apart from walking into a retailer and saying, "Hey, have have any have any have any uh, brewers come by and tried to force you not to carry other people's products?" You know, we, we also have this method that they can apply every time a license comes up, which is to say, you know, we'll check the social security numbers on these applicants and the individuals who own them, and see if they are tied to any other of our of our applicants. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and in the wrong tier, I, I, you know, distributors do do a a good job, and they, they definitely are out there working for for promoting sales and dealing with the system. Um, and my, my issue has never been that, that we don't, we don't want to investigate and understand whether or not that three tier system by virtue of uh, prohibiting ownership between the tiers is accomplishing it. I just, I've always wondered, you know, do we need to have that in light of all the other laws that actually prohibit the end effect that we're looking to accomplish with that, lack of uh lack of mixed ownership or that prohibition on mixed ownership Mm -hmm. um another like piece of this well for what you were saying as well that's also not stopped uh the brother or the wife of an owner of a brewery to open a distributor right um so so it it wouldn't stop the brother uh most most states would stop the wife Mm-hmm. Uh, although, although many states do apply uh, a rule, uh, you know, about reasonableness and, and funds. So they're, they're forced to go in and actually assess if, if the spouse, if the spouse has their own money and earned it from their own source 
and no money was given from the from the other spouse who has the source at the at the wholesaler level then a lot of states would allow if you could actually show and go through a probably you have to go through a hearing um, show that that this money was separate that it's something the wife does separate that the or that that the the other spouse does separate um, and that they don't exert influence over the other person that then you can you can get that to work um, so that there are there are a myriad of of issues in the application of this, but as a general principle, you know we have this we have this no spousal ownership. But but as a, a rule of practical application, if if you could actually show that you didn't get any money to start up your distributorship from your spouse, a lot of states would allow you to do it. And then quite a few states just say no, spouse relationships out. Um, brothers usually allowed, sisters usually allowed, even most times children usually allowed. Although some states do investigate until they are certain that the child did not have money from the parents to start the distributorship, mm. you know that, that that they'll go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that is uh, particular to beer is the notion of uh, franchise rights and the duration that franchise rights dictates uh, who can sell what, where, and for how long. Um, can you shed a little bit of light onto how franchise rights play into the three-tier system? Yeah, franchise rights are, are kind of a carve-out from from the Clayton Act, although one wonders whether or not they would be an antitrust violation because a lot of different distributors get together and say, hey, I'm not going to, you know, I'll only distribute this Budweiser product in this territory and I'm not going to distribute it outside of that territory and I'm going to agree with my other Budweiser distributors in the state or if I'm on state borders, you know, across the state borders that we won't sell into others' territories. And those rights are usually enshrined, although sometimes they've been challenged and those challenges have usually failed at the, at the federal level. Um, those rights to have that behavior where you basically agree to an exclusive territory, which is, you know, to sell the beer um, and exclusivity is no one else gets to sell it in that same territory. Uh, those are usually enshrined in state laws that sort of countenance this behavior and ensure that there's no competition within that, that specific territory that you've carved out for the product that you've just, you've just agreed to get, which is what we, we term a franchise, right? Although in, in actuality, many of these statutes assert and say, look, this is absolutely not a franchise because there are a whole host of state franchise laws that come into play and that they'd be forced to abide by if it really was the grant of a franchise, which, which are, you know, sort of other exceptions to, to antitrust principles and exclusive dealing and territories. Um, so we use the term franchise right, and and really it is in the, uh, I guess in 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 the Webster's dictionary sense it it is a franchise, but in the legal sense we we try and say it's not a franchise because that has a whole bunch of other implications. The, the word franchise, though, for these franchise rights dates back to well before there were there were really franchise rights that were that were given out by statute. Um, so that, that franchise is basically an, an agreement that you've got exclusivity in a territory for a brand and no one else gets to sell it into that territory, which is, which is interesting because it means that if I want to buy it, no one's going to compete for my business in that territory except retailers. Um, so if, if a retailer wants to buy it, no one's going to compete for the retailer. He's got he's to get it from one source. He can't get it. She can't get it from, from another. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember this being a thing when even PBR was franchised out into certain, di- like if we were buying it in the West Loop, it was, uh, who was it, Gluns? Yeah, or- so there, the map was split between different wholesalers. Is that, uh, so in some parts of Chicago, for example, you could buy PBR, you bought PBR from one wholesaler in other parts of Chicago, say, north and south of north avenue for example yep you could you'd buy them from different uh different wholesalers uh how uh, is that divider simply like a historical uh, uh, <laughs> legacy those, of past agreements th- those those dividers may be historically for past agreements or or they were you know if, if we're talking about the 40s and the 50s yeah it, it most likely is that that other houses had the distributorship and they they got together and it just so happens that where they got together, other houses remained independent and North Avenue was the dividing line or the expressway was a dividing line. It's more common in most states to do it by county now because everybody, it's, it's easy to demarcate a county and deal with it. But the old agreements, because maybe even dating back to the time when you had one truck and some horses, uh, the, the old agreements were for smaller distributors who had smaller territories. And those territories were not countywide. Now that we have trucks and big logistics centers and are able to deal with it, a county seems like a pretty, a pretty decent, um, you know, a pretty decent territory to be able to service. But back in the day, you you went up twenty streets and over twenty streets, and and you demarcated it that way. Now there are within the city of Chicago and with other major cities as well. You you have demarcation lines that don't necessarily run to the county that the city sits in, just because historically those rights were granted when people could only operate in smaller territories and they've never sold the family still maintains the business and you know they get to keep that territory so by virtue of a large population and the the mechanics or or the technology of the day you ended up with with some of those demarcation lines mm-hmm. um another thing that breweries point out frequently when it comes to these franchise rights is the fact that within a lot of the agreements that they sign is that uh, there's a difficulty in getting out of them if there's some kind of breakdown in the relationship. Uh, Obviously there's so much mutual benefit to be found in these relationships that no one really wants to break out of these in the first place, but some breweries have pointed to the fact that uh, it's expensive to get out of these relationships if there's a breakdown. Uh, whereas in the spirits and wine industry, you will see brands move around different wholesalers much more frequently uh, or more easily. Uh, thinking specifically, uh, when I was uh, as a beverage buyer, I saw um, I saw Journeyman move, I saw Smirnoff move. I saw a bunch of wineries move between different wholesalers as well. Um, and I was wondering if there's, I know I'm kind of asking two different things. No, no, here, at, at, at the state level, it, it actually, it operates a little differently. Different states do have mm-hmm. different laws. So, so some states do have full franchise protection for spirits. And mm-hmm. it's much the same as it is with beer in Illinois, where mm-hmm. you're not allowed except for a few explicit reasons to, to, get, out of, to get out of the agreement. And then from the from the other aspect, many many distributors go ahead and 
negotiate for and include in their spirits agreements where they don't have franchise rights or in their beer agreements where they might not have franchise rights, the same clauses and understandings of exclusive territory and a buyout right and termination only for a, a certain set of activities or, or you know, deeds that, that would allow for, for the franchise to terminate. Um, back, back to the initial part of that question though, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about um, the evolution of these was really that brewery consolidation came first. Big brewers then were able to exert some undue influence on distributors and distributors said, because they were the small mom and pop operations, hey, wait a minute, I, I, don't, I don't want this. I, I, can't, I can't afford to have you not sell to me and I can't afford to have you breach the contract. So they had very good lobbyists who went in and in many states, the, the franchise laws run in accordance with pretty much what the exclusive territory agreements were of the day. So in, in a lot of states, you see sort of the same stuff and the same language being used that was used in the distribution contracts that were used back in those days, but they just codified those rights into law to make sure that the large brewers could not, could not beat up on the small distributors and take advantage of them by withholding product by selling to other people in the marketplace, by forcing them to sell their distributorship to someone else. Um, it's, it's really interesting that, that now, and this is part of the point you were, you were getting at, that's flipped and because craft has become such an amazing thing, it's now, and, and distributors have consolidated quite a bit, it's now distributors that are multi-million dollar, billion dollar operations and it's small craft brewers who find themselves in the odd position of being bound to contracts and by law that was meant for a different power balance drafted solely for that power balance. It was not drafted to say, hey, the small guy in any situation gets this set of rights and the big guy gets this set of rights. It was drafted to say the brewer gets this and the distributor gets this. So that now you flipped the relationship on its head and that's where small brewers who and this happens in every area of the law who are faced with the choice of paying an attorney to go through something or maybe taking half that money that they would spend over time and just getting out of, of a relationship or sucking it up and staying in a relationship because they can't afford, you know, those goddamn attorneys, um, that they end up very much hurt by, by two things, by these unfair laws and by the cost of legal services. And the, the, the testament to that and the way that I know that I am, you know, you're on to a point, we're all on to a point here with this is that there are movements. The Brewers Association recently started its own movement for this, but small brewers guilds in different states had been pushing and had some success. Colorado is, is one that had some, some very early success in changing these laws to make sure that breweries of a certain size were exempt from those franchise protections so that they recognize the power imbalance and they got something done about it. But that's all political. That's 100% lobbying and Colorado did it because Colorado was one of the first states to go through the craft, you know, renaissance and they, they, got, they got together and got something done. Arizona's got, uh, there's a proposal or I think they've actually passed their law. Um, I know the proposal has been put up in Illinois. Uh, it hasn't gone anywhere and it won't for a while, but as state, brewing operations, craft brewing operations grow, 
and become more evolved, you know, their lobbying efforts and their recognition that, that it really is all about how state legislatures treat us and what we can get done with the state legislature. You know, we'll see these things hopefully change across the board because everyone recognizes that it's, it's not fair to have the small guy have to sign away his entire operation and distribution to one person and then to not be able to do anything about it because of because of attorney's fees and a power imbalance if something goes wrong or isn't going his way or if he has a problem. I mean, even to, to try and address a real problem means you still got to go in and sue and deal with things. And that's going to cost time and money that you might not have. You need if uh, if a brewery is seeking to uh, shift to a different house uh, or is seeking to leave an agreement that they're in, generally speaking, uh, what do they need to cite in order or, or what steps are they are available for them in order to uh, make those moves? And I understand that breweries have different agreements with different oh, parties, yeah. but it's, it's, it's if, all over if you were place. to if you were to make a generalization about it. What, well, if, if you're looking to get out without having to pay something under franchise laws, usually codified universally around the franchise laws are the idea that you haven't timely been paid. You've sent proper notice to the distributor and then you still weren't paid after you sent proper notice to the distributor. That, that, is, that is generally one that you find in just about every state's franchise, franchise law. Uh, apart from that, you'll see that the typical negotiation and Wisconsin actually has this codified in their in their franchise statutes is really between distributors. So you as a brewer would say, hey, I'm not getting what I want from this distributor. And I would very much like to find another distributor. And I will go and talk to that new distributor and work out a deal where they go and buy the franchise rights from the old distributor. And I don't have to do anything but sell beer to the to the new distributor. Now, you know, some of that, some of that stems from a lack of sales, which quite frankly, yes, you can ask your distributor to do a certain amount for sales, but they're not, they're not your guaranteed sales arm. Like many in this, this in Bamforth's book and, and in, in many of the, the, the great old books about, you know, and I, by old, I mean, 2006 to 2012, <laughs> uh, you know, about, about craft, you know, the, the, the one thing these, these old timers who, who were brilliant and understood it tried to impress upon people was that it's not about making good beer. It's about selling good beer and you need to be able to do that. And that's, that's really something that, um, craft abhors, right? Like craft really has a problem with, with acknowledging that there might be marketing and, and there might be you know some really good product placement and there there might be some some amazing you know work behind the scenes where you pay the Instagram influencer or, or get them some free stuff that that helps your brand grow um, as opposed to it just being about the quality of the product and and not the hype um, but. A lot of times, and I, I, you know, it's two sides to everything. You'll, I see, I see many times, craft brewers who want to leave. You know, some have real grievances with with distributors doing bad stuff or not not promoting even in the way they said they would. But others, you know, the, the fault can equally be put upon the brewer for not hiring a sales force and not realizing that they actually you can't just keep turning that system and making as much beer as you want and expecting your distributor to take it if it's not selling in the marketplace. And the distributor, certainly for, for that small amount 
which is a large amount to you, but a small amount to them, can't be tasked with dedicating its limited sales force to a disproportionate amount of time for your brand when it's got all these other craft brands that it has to deal with. And then most likely in, in just about every place, it actually became and holds its distributorship and has the territory that you're in because, you know, it's got Molson, it's got Corona, it's got Budweiser, it's got somebody who, who really does have a sales force and also incentivizes its own salespeople to make, to make sales. Um, in, uh, with that, uh, when a wholesaler goes out of business or decides to sell, uh, a portion of its portfolio to another company, is that an, uh, another exit opportunity for breweries, uh, to, to illustrate this example a little more clearly if what we, uh, in Illinois, uh, a company called Breakthrough Beverage decided to sell its beer and cider portfolio to another wholesaler called Lakeshore Beverage that owns, um, that is uh, an AB house, but also has a very large craft uh, craft business as well. So could those brands uh, from Breakthrough go to other wholesalers where that sale isn't exactly intended? That's a good one. In 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 some states, it is it is very much your easy out because that transfer might allow you to one hundred percent get out. In other states, uh, it's it's nuanced because the statute says something along the lines of, you know, you're going to approve this unless you can show that the new distributor doesn't meet your reasonable standards for selling beer, and you need to have put into a contract or somewhere throughout the history of your operation around the state or around the country shown and described what those reasonable standards are. You can't just come up with them the minute you hear there's a sale and try and say, well, these are my standards, even though you, you can't show, you know, to, to 12 people who, who might be on a jury judging you, um, that you've applied them in other places. And in, in some States, uh, it is not even an out unless, unless you've negotiated the sale and, and the right price to the distributor who is, uh, who is going out of business or trying to sell the brand rights off. So for the most part, the majority have that, that middle road where yes, you're going to have to go wherever they want to assign you unless you can show somehow that they don't meet your standards. And that's, that's what Illinois got. Um, that's, that typically also when you get into negotiating these agreements, basically what the agreement will say in, in any decent sort of franchise relationship here, which is, yeah, we understand that, that you may sell part of your business once, so long as it doesn't affect our business, that's fine. But if you, if you do in fact sell and it does impact our business and this is where you want to put it in your agreement, you know, Hey, here's, here's what I need for my business to run right. And here's what I would consider an impact. You know, do you have, X number of, of craft brands and do you have a specialty in craft or do you not have a specialty in craft? Do you have a sales force that, that deals with and is trained in quality control? Do you have a sales force that knows how to sell craft versus just selling macro? You know, if, if you draft the agreement the right way and show in the contract that those standards are ones that you want to um, have be determinative in this situation, should it come up in the future, then you're on a much better footing to go ahead and press for it when it happens. But, but by, by and large, the thing, the thing that occurs is that you don't really have much rights. Now, the, the difference is 
what that amounts to under the law most times is that they do have to take an assignment of the old contract. So if you've got a pretty good old contract with your old brewer, you can sit back and say, look, I'm not going to sign a new contract with you. You're free to exercise your rights under the law and take the old contract that you might not like or that has some, you know, some provisions in it for incentives that I might be entitled to that you don't want to pay. And if you don't like that, you're free to let me out of my contract. Um, but you'll find that the practice is the new guy comes along and says, hey, let's negotiate a new agreement. Sometimes that's good for you. Sometimes you as a, as a craft brewer might be able to turn around and say, this is fine and I'm willing to go with it. And you really don't have a choice in going with it, but you can try and get some incentives out of it and say, look, I, I know you just paid some multiplier for my stuff. Toss one more onto it and pay me that over the course of a year as, as some additional capital to help my business grow. Or take, take some extra money and put that into a sales staff for me. Or you know, take some extra money and help me run some price promotions or sponsor some events, things like that. It's, it's the, the savvy person who, who has gone out and done the research and it doesn't take much research to figure out all the different options you might have in, in the days of the internet. Uh, we'll, we'll go into it eyes open with, with an understanding. The thing I, I hate to see is when someone just kind of shrugs and says, well, there's nothing I can do about it because there are a lot of things you can do about it that don't involve getting out of it. There are ways you can turn that situation to your advantage and you probably should because doing it and walking away from money that you could have to invest in your brand and help your brand grow, that's, that's another type of opportunity that if you're just focused on the idea that I'm stuck with some new distributor that I didn't get to choose, um, you're, you're forgetting a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so much uh, of the importance is in the initial deal that uh, a producer makes with a wholesaler and the complexion of, uh, of their relationship could change over time based on how successful or unsuccessful a brewery is with that wholesaler. And hopefully uh, an ideal situation for a brewery in a situation where their rights may be transferred to a new wholesaler in the event of a sale of that wholesaler is that they've grown enough to be able to uh, come to a new and more advent advantageous agreement uh, that's reflective of where they are now. That's an interesting point, and it's a one once well taken, right? In, in your initial go, although you could have the benefit of good counsel and deal with things, you might not have the negotiating strength that you will have later on. And that's, that's a real problem. And it's, it's interesting because I, you know, from experience, I can tell you that the deals that a brewer has cut in its home territory and its home state as it was growing are way worse than, than the deals that it cuts when it goes into another state, eyes wide open, has the years of experience under its belt and understands what it wants and what it can get from negotiating with, you know, the four to five distributors that exist to deal with its products in the territory. There are also other things, you know, that, that a lot of places can do. Many states allow for distributors as a, as a, as a, as a license to go ahead and, and distribute other beverages. So sometimes you can actually find states where you could, you could find a small, a small purveyor of wine who might be a better fit for your craft brand than a large macro house that sells beer everywhere. Um, again, again, and sometimes it goes back to, you know, the beast doesn't have to grow so much. And if you're continually making this beer, but it's not selling, 
perhaps the the trick is to invest in sales and press for it and not simply look for another state to try and expand into hoping that you know there'll be demand there mm -hmm. and we definitely see uh in illinois small very small wholesalers that i would imagine probably don't operate with the same extent of franchise obligation that say founders would with lakeshore for example um if we're talking about a brand like untitled arts operating with a very small wholesaler we could say like a very mom and pop wholesaler that's uh, another type of arrangement uh for a very small producer is to go with someone that's actually your size as uh, as a wholesaler correct and maybe you have a more you're in a, a better advantageous situation because you're a different size fish in a smaller pond that's certainly an option although I, I have to tell you that the reasonable demands of brewers as far as you know quality and freshness and um, issues like at least getting some some ratio of the sales force comparative to the size, big, big brewers are willing to deal with that. I'm sorry, big distributors are willing to deal on that platform. But yeah, I, you know, the, you're on, you're on a negotiating footing with a smaller distributor that 100% may have, have a benefit in you guys coming to a deal that you like and one that you, you both can live with. It may just be a, by virtue of being one of a few brands in their portfolio that you get more attention and same proportionality, just the proportionality is greater. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there is a benefit to doing a little bit more research than just trying to figure out who's part of the, the Brewers Distribution Association uh, for, you know, the National Beer Wholesalers Association for, for, for that area and seeing who's, who's there as small craft distributors as wine distributors, as spirits distributors who might want to take on a beer brand and seeing what they might be able to offer the small guy mm -hmm. in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, sales force and sales power, they probably won't have the ability to offer what the large guys can offer in terms of incentives or what the large guys can offer in terms of volume right away, given, given how they're, probably plugged into every grocery chain, every retail, you know, large and small retail chain. And then this, the untapped market that no one wants to talk about, but is so important, the gas stations and, you know, the small convenience store retailers. I mean, those are, those are amazing outlets. And if, if you have a good and successful sales program that can deal with those or get into those chains, I mean, that's just, that's stellar for, for anybody who's able to do it. And it's, I remember um, some blog or some post I was I was reading on a Twitter feed, where I think at the same time the Brewers Association conference was going on, the like National Convenience Retailers Conference was going on, <laughs> and and Miller and Anheuser were at that National Convenience making sales, <laughs> and you know every brewer was was at the Brewers Association conference uh, hearing for the third time some some lawyer talk about trademarks or some quality control person talk about, you know, how to use botanicals. 
the uh, the <laughs> the Brewers Conference was the dummy for the for AB. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we will we'll sponsor your Brewers Association Conference. Just stay away from from our convenience <laughs> store sale. Uh, you know, another thing I I wanted to jump into before I do this, actually, what are what are we drinking? What what is uh, I see you're drinking <laughs> something, Ashley. I see yours drinking something, Sam. What are right. we all drinking? By by virtue of how I know you usually start out this way, I went out today and made sure that I had a good stock of what was my grandma's favorite beer, this brown lef. Oh, uh, fantastic. She's, she's Belgian. So it was it was always one of these weird things in our house growing up that that there was this other there was always this other weird stuff with the foil on the top that that uh grandma would let us taste from time to time and, <laughs> and this this is one of my absolute favorite favorite beers no matter what i've got a fridge full of craft that you know i, I could i could drag out and promote promote every one of the wonderful clients that i have but i also <laughs> thought like there might be something special to have one of these tonight mm-hmm. what uh what attracts you to uh to like Belgian beer or to Leffe in particular? Well, it, so it was one of the first tastes I had, right, of, of this sort of stuff. So I didn't grow up with, with you know, the weird Miller Bud uh, Pilsners that, that had a style. My, my beer always had like this weird, to me back then, you know, an, an odd, deep, rusty taste <laughs> that had, had a little bit of funk on the back end, um, which, which I still to this day, if you can find me a good Trappist, uh, it's it's spectacular stuff. Mm-hmm. Sam, what are you what do you got? <laughs> Sipping on some humbucker over here. Got to keep. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Got to keep the uh, the summer of lagers flowing. Nice. Yeah, it's got to be <laughs> summer forever, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> no winter uh, this year. <laughs> excellent. Uh, so we got pale lager. We got uh, Belgian. Uh, I was, I, my glass is empty and I'm too lethargic to get up and get more. <laughs> uh, but I was enjoying the, uh, Anadromus from Anchorage Brewery in Alaska. Nice. Uh, oh. just one of my favorite beers, uh, dark sour beer aged in Pinot Noir barrels, fooders and scotch barrels. And it's with, uh, as with a lot of Anchorage beers, nice. there's Brett in there as well. And, oh, it's. It's divine. It's divine. If you can find a bottle of it, crack it and um, share it, share the love. I don't have anyone here to share with me, so I'm being selfish <laughs> and enjoying it myself, but uh, I definitely recommend sharing it. Um, okay. Another thing I really wanted to talk about is the, the pandemic has forced uh, a lot of breweries and wholesalers to reimagine and especially breweries to reimagine their business in some way, whether it's their hospitality side or their, uh, their sales side. And the same goes for retailers too. Direct consumer is something that we hear about almost on a daily basis in, especially on the trade side. Um, it's been challenging for, breweries to and retailers to connect with people and so where does direct to consumer play into all of this because to me it feels natural that breweries and retailers who have been affected really massively by this 
should be able to supply people directly. But this also kind of comes into conflict with what the distributor is obligated to, uh, what the distributor has within its rights to do. Um, and if a brewery has a self-distribution business too, then they may uh, impede on their own business, i.e. the uh, the retailers. So the, the, the quick and dirty answer is check your contract to see if somebody wrote, you're not going to make sales into the territory to anybody else, or if you're not going to make retail sales to anybody else. Um, or, you know, quite frankly, if you had smart carve outs that, that said, yes, if, if we're allowed to do direct to consumer, we'll do it. Look, direct to consumer is very hard to do. It is, it is a logistics nightmare that you basically end up partnering with people. And I think craft, especially craft spirits, craft beer to a certain extent as well has this following and people who are willing to even though you know now they're at a 15.99 price point for a four pack uh willing to pay an extra 15.99 for for the shipping for the thing so you've 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 got a a market for it but it is it is unless you really get the shipping and handling, receiving. Yeah, I had a, a retailer who actually hired somebody who ran an eBay online sales thing uh, to come in and and help deal with getting getting their their shipping and everything else set up so that it became a process and they, and they got it automated so that you know the order comes in, the label prints out, somebody knows what to put in the box and and to send it around. Um, I think it it's necessary in our current time. And it's proven by the fact that many states have gone and bent their laws or made exception to their laws to allow for people who are businesses that weren't in a tier or quite frankly, even retailers in some states aren't allowed to ship, um, allowed those, those entities to go ahead and ship direct to consumer and have those sales by virtue of, of making up for, and I don't never come close, uh, for on-premise, right? Mm-hmm. So hopefully this is a trend for everybody who who wants to try the Anchorage beer and knows that it's going to be sold out unless, you know, the, the, there may be plenty of retailers in, in Anchorage who have it on the shelf. Why not, why not let a national marketplace work like a national marketplace and allow me to contact that Anchorage retailer and have him send it to me if I'm willing to pay the shipping price and whatever price he's going to charge me for the labor of getting it into a box and off to off to FedEx um, or DHL, right? Mm-hmm. We we all know DHLs. How you? That's, <laughs> how you, that's how you, where all my belts. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> this, this is how you get something shipped. <laughs> um, you know, and and get it to DHL. Why 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 should it be that I am I am limited in in my territory and in my reach and in my taste by virtue of uh, these prohibitions, uh, you know, the state will say, well, I'm not making the tax off that, but that's easy. I can go ahead and not force a licensure, but force tax on anything that comes into the marketplace. I can make every, everybody wants to sell in, do something as simple as register, just register, tell us what you sent in, pay the tax on it here instead of paying the tax on it in, uh, you know, in Anchorage. And the, the Anchorage guy or the Anchorage shop might, might try and, or the Anchorage government might try and say, we want our, we want our money. Um, to, to this point, wine really beat everybody to this, right? Wine has always been a small commodity consumer driven, uh, product that those, those wineries 
understood what they needed to do to get around the system and have been bending and changing those laws since the 60s and 70s to make sure that direct to consumer can happen so that they can they can have have the imports and get them across the country from one centralized location in New York or California, or that they can be a small California winery and, and sell small batches and small volumes direct to consumer because that's where their money's going to come from. They're not going to sell all that wine in California. And it, 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 it's not as if they need to go and find retailers in every state this way. They can actually not have to worry about where demand is. Demand comes to them. Yeah. Uh, that that's a little bit different uh, because spirits and beer had, I mean, you said it right off the bat, had stronger distributor lobbies that think, well, hey, if I'm not, if 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 this is something that exists, it's going to eat so much of my cake that I don't want it to happen. And that's another sort of false myth about uh, false myth. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's, that's another just so story that people come up with when they try and think about economics without without actually looking at the data, because most of these direct to consumer sales are not going to chop into the bread and butter or even the the you know, the cream of what the distributor is doing, which is getting it to bars, getting it to restaurants, getting it to retailers where people buy it at retail. These are these are individual one offs and single things that enthusiasts want to try and get. And that, that market is not satisfied. Those people aren't buying. I mean, it's, it's not like I, I want the Anchorage beer, but I go out and, and I settle for some, some junk from, you know, Southern Illinois. Um, I'm just not going to go buy the beer from, from Southern Illinois. Uh, you know, I, if I'm targeting what, what as an enthusiast I want for, for my direct-to-consumer, it's not like I'm replacing that with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, with a lot of the emphasis that has been put in the craft beer culture is not just supporting the retailers, but supporting the brewery directly as a consumer. Go to the tap room, go spend money there, uh, participate in events there. Um, is what we outlined uh in relation to wine selling directly to consumers uh, far off from where we can go with breweries selling product directly to to consumers as opposed to retailers selling product directly to consumers regardless of where they are on the map? Uh, I mean, wine, wine and spirits have the added benefit of longer shelf life. So the, the need to get freshness, uh, that's, that's, that's a difference. They, they also have different properties when it comes to the type of, of shipping. So spirits I can ship and not worry too much about, about refrigeration, right? Um, wine, I really want refrigeration or at least temperature control, but, but I don't necessarily, um, I don't need it so long as I can show it's not going to go above a certain temperature, uh, which, which may or may not be easy given the method of shipping. Um, beer is a little harder, uh, and that it needs to, it needs to be fresh when it, when it gets out. So it needs to be kept cold or should be kept cold, um, to be it. But I think all those models from especially wine are, are excellent. Excellent. You just don't need to reinvent the wheel. Those are, those are excellent statutes that could be just repurposed for beer. There's absolutely nothing that would, that would, that would hinder the commodity, um, 
I would, I would, mm-hmm. and the, the reason I bring up the freshness control and everything else that I would love to see the statute actually mandate that my stuff get here fresh. I know that's not yeah. going to happen, but the, the, the idea that, that wine can do it, but beer can't, I, I don't, I don't think that's a good one. I see people bring up these things as ways of, of trying to differentiate between the commodities, but it's, it's a bottle that you're going to ship and it's filled with stuff or even better. It's a can that you're going to ship and it's, it's filled with liquid. Um, Mm-hmm. getting it direct to somebody is is in the quantities are the same the same amount of alcohol it's, it's not as if you know people are going to order tons and tons and cases and cases you're probably going to order two four packs and have it shipped you're going to order two bottles and have it shipped or one bottle or a case mm-hmm. um as far as where we could be progress wise in illinois for a brewery to have the ability to ship directly to a consumer. Um, how far or close are we uh, in that? And what would it take for that to be a, an ability for a brewery? Well, we, we would need to codify what just happened for COVID, which has been an allowance for brewers with on-premise retail shops to function like other retail shops in Illinois to allow for delivery and shipping. Well, no, delivery. And these are these are terms that people threw around and I don't think used uh, the right way. But uh, so, so retailers in Illinois, people who are packaged goods stores and people who are restaurants have in the state statute uh, the ability to ship and deliver alcohol to anybody in the state. There is no limitation on how you can do that. There's no limitation that says, you know, not by common carrier, you have to have your own employees do it. And there's no definition, even if they were to use the term common carrier of what common carrier means. The thing that happens with most brewers is that they don't go and apply for and get a separate retail license. They wouldn't be allowed to get one from the state. So that state retail license that lets retailers go ahead and ship and deliver direct does not allow, and this is all, by the way, it can be limited by local control. So the village of Orland Park can actually decide, hey, we don't want any retailers to deliver into our territory. And you can be excluded from doing that as a retailer in Chicago. Uh but most most municipalities allow for it. So the issue with manufacturers is that they have the allowance to run a tap room, tasting room, brew pub, whatever it is. Um, but not brew pub, that's a separate one, but, but a tap room or a tasting room by virtue of an exception in the manufacturer statute that says, yes, you can operate, uh, you know, a, a tasting room or a, a, a bar attached to your, to your facility, so long as you get a local liquor license. So you go out and get the local liquor license, but because the ability to distribute is tied to the state license, that is a retailer license, and you don't hold that license, while you can do everything that a retailer can do on premise and sell sell that alcohol, and you can even, you know, food is not part of the statutes. You know, if you get the the local authority to sell food, you can you can run an entire bar, with the exception of selling wine and spirits as a brewer. Um, if you just hold a manufacturer's license, uh, the one thing you can't do that retailers get to do is to to deliver and ship. So then COVID came along and through the executive mandate um, and then the, uh, the authority granted under the executive mandate to the ILCC, Illinois breweries are now allowed during these COVID times to go ahead and deliver 
not shipped by common carrier, but but delivered directly to anybody in the state. So long as the local municipality allows for it and so long as their local liquor license, they have to have a local liquor license. They have to have a tap room or a tasting room or a packaged goods shop connected to the brewery. You can't do it if you don't have some city uh, municipality village liquor license. So if you were just a production facility that didn't have a tap room, you don't get to do this. Um, but it, it, they allow for delivery. So quite a few of the guys, it took them a while, um, figure that out, got it going. And now they've even started to expand their delivery territory or they realized, Hey, people don't mind if I don't get it to them next day, I'll do, I'll do South side, on you know Monday and and Wednesday, and I'll do Northside on Tuesday and Thursday, and I'll do DuPage County on Friday, and they figured out how with the limited resources they had to go ahead and try and set up these delivery programs, and it's been it's been amazing. I've had I've had a lot of beer delivered to my house, <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks to this, and I was able to support clients and go directly to to their shops and and get it directly from the shop. And in, in quantities that, quite frankly, I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, um, mm-hmm. because of this this change. And I think the the impetus and the press should be for brewers to lobby to keep this and allow this to stay the same, and to have this right going forward. Because it's it's not as if you know the big guys are doing it. There there is no Anheuser Busch brewery here, so there's no Anheuser Busch tap room. That's going to allow them to go do it if that's <laughs> if that's what somebody might be worried about, and I don't know that these sales cut into the type of sales that distributors think they have at grocery stores. Um, you know, these are very limited purchases that 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 happen each time you want to get some beer, and you can buy in quantities that, quite frankly, you might not be able to buy in at a grocery store. You know, you don't want to have the the embarrassment of buying two cases of beer. <laughs> You <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely a fight. But the fight is one where we are now we are now used to the idea of these brewers delivering. I think the neat thing COVID's done is that they proved they can do it responsibly, and they proved they can do it the right way without issues and without problems. And it should be a natural uh, a natural extension of their rights to have this become something that they're then allowed to do after COVID is over. Mm-hmm. But it's a lobbying effort, very much a lobbying effort. Yeah. I was going to say, do you see this being a movement that we're going to see yeah. or is there going to be a big fight? No, this is, this, this is one that's, that's, that I think, I think the, the distributors have to get together and press, but the, they have, they have good footing to be able to press this. Mm-hmm. And they should press it. Quite frankly, this is something that I've always argued about. Brewers, the, the brewers have this grassroots organization with every brew pub and every tap room across the state. Just put out little cards on the bar that say, you know, hey, we've got this initiative. It's X number bill, you know, four five two. Sign here. We'll take it. We'll put a postage card on it and send it to your, you know, to your congressman, your your state representative, or your state your state senator, or we'll send it to the governor and and show them. And by the way, here's here's a a mural in our tap room or in our tasting room or in our brew pub that you can post on Instagram with this hashtag to support us and show or Twitter, you know, and and not to leave Twitter out. Um, 
that you can use to help us promote this initiative? I mean, they, these are these are easy things. Brewers have have this. They have a, an actual space in every you know each place that they're located where they could hold an event to have their state senator or they're not in, not now, but you know at some point in time, um, have their state senator or have their state rep come by and do a fundraiser or come by and just meet people and see if people want to make donations. Um, you know, the, the, the savviness and the awesomeness that the guild is, uh, the Illinois craft brewers guild is doing is helping educate brewers. I think about this stuff and getting them to think more along the lines of, you know, we don't, we don't need to put up with this. We can actually fight it, but we have to be organized and we have to have some concerted effort to fight it. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what would the, what would the craft uh, Illinois Craft Brewers Guild's perspective look like if they did want to fight this? Well, I don't. I don't represent the guild, and I don't speak for the guild. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to guess that mm-hmm. their perspective is that their brewers want to have this. I mean, I, you would you would pull the brewers, and if it if it turns out this is an initiative that they like, that they think they're making money on, and they really want, uh, I would think that the guild would back them. But that's mm-hmm. a question for the guild. Get get them on the show. <laughs> yeah, we will next week, yeah, right? All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I I mean, I think that this is a fantastic time, and breweries can really continue to build and expand on the one to one relationships that they have with customers too. And I think that there are breweries that have been uh, successful in maintaining these relationships that have otherwise been complicated to foster or continue because there is limited business that they can do out of their tap room. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially over the winter time, I think that people do really want to support, uh, support the breweries directly. Um, And on the other side of it as well, uh, to kind of tie a bow on this uh, direct consumer discussion, I think a big part of the role that a good craft beer retailer plays looking at the uh the retail tier is that you follow a store as a tastemaker they like you get interested in what they in what they sell um thinking of like a place like the beer bazaar or the beer temple or bottles and cans like uh they are influential in what people drink and what is the or they people in other states because the internet is somewhat of an equalizer uh should people in iowa should if they go to the beer temple when they come in illinois shouldn't people in iowa be able to buy buy beer from the beer temple because they get a certain level of service from them or is that underlooking uh interstate commerce well that that's that's a statewide issue that i mean sorry that's a national issue that does implicate interstate commerce and and you know, stepping on Iowa's toes for the thing. I, I would argue, yes, everyone should shop at the beer temple. And and <laughs> two, uh, you know, in addition, you know, if anyone from Iowa comes and wants to then purchase from the beer temple and have them ship it, that Iowa can maintain the tax revenue that it wouldn't otherwise get by having the sale happen, by having Illinois give up the tax revenue and have it go to Iowa or by having Iowa grant a, a limited and reasonable priced license for people who want to do this to make sure that you're registered in Iowa and that you are set up to pay the taxes so that you can go ahead and ship to Iowa and just pay the taxes direct as the beer temple in Iowa 
and have it done that way. There's there's absolutely no reason, provided the product is made under a national imprimatur, which it is under the federal brewer's notice, um, that that somehow you should be limited to those to those selling in the state when there's really no question that there are no problems with doctored or adulterated beverages coming from retailers when they're made by national brewers or, you know, by craft brewers. There are all these, these horribles, the prey to horribles that the people who want to fight this retail outlet expansion and, and retail sales into other states sort of drag out. One of them is taxation. And the truth is we can, we can set it up. You can offer a limited license. You could even offer a registration or you could just pay the taxes directly, but tax isn't an issue in the day of internet commerce. Everyone else seems to figure out state taxes. They're actually, you know, if, if you, if you use any number of online sales platforms, they have it built in. They know exactly what it's going to be. And it'd be easy for them to, to then input into their systems what what the local liquor taxes are for you to be able to figure that out and for it to get paid. Um, the other is you know this this notion of well we 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 as the state regulate quality and control and we can't we can't guarantee safety and they don't actually perform any of those activities they they're not out looking for counterfeit alcohol and they're certainly not out testing alcohol to see whether or not it's counterfeit and then it turns out that when they when they file briefs or try and argue against these things and 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 try and present evidence of adulterated stuff, most of the examples come from out of the country, <laughs> which are just ridiculous given given the TTB standards and the FDA standards and and all the whole host of regulations that that any food manufacturing facility have to have to deal with in any state. So, I am I am not convinced that there is any reason apart from protectionist measures for distributors and potentially for in-state retailers as well, because an in-state retailer doesn't want to lose the business when it, it also in this instance has a monopoly, at least within the state as compared to out state, um, to not let these retailers go ahead and ship direct to consumers in other states. I just, I don't see the justification for stopping it. Absolutely. Apart from that, it, you know, that it hurts the business interest of the people in the other state, which is exactly what the Commerce Clause is supposed to stop from happening. <laughs> you're not supposed to pass a law because you're, you're worried about competition out of state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's look at another topic uh, of that is we've seen a little more come about in Twitter sphere and in the world of beer, and that is uh, IP theft and the use of uh consent what i would call consent uh ver and collaboration versus uh ip theft we've seen um small breweries both uh opting uh strong branding from lar companies that are much larger than them um as in some cases a nod or making a mustard beer and we've seen uh collaborations between two small local companies where there is consent yeah. and i'm kind of curious as to say if i were to make a beer with reese's pieces that i wanted to have little reese's pieces on the label uh for example and it's a one-off beer I don't plan on making it again. And 
uh, I don't want Nestle or Nabisco or whoever. Is it Mars? Owns. I was trying to think of who who makes <laughs> yeah. uh, right? <laughs> one of the one of those very large companies that have more money than I ever will. Um, is that? Uh, do you see that happening? Hershey makes Reese's. Just definitely. Hershey's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, is this is this fun or is this a problem? It, it's fun and it's also I, mean, I I don't think it's really a problem but but it is it is potentially trademark infringement it's potentially copyright infringement it's potentially trade dress infringement um look it, I, I when I talk about it I usually give the best intent to you know the the Star Wars fanatic who owns a brewery and that they're trying to pay homage by you know by putting Vader on the front of the thing but they don't have the permission to put Vader on. They may have a permission under statutes to draw their own picture of Vader and put it on the wall of their um, wall of their brewery as an original piece of art, but to then take that and put it out into commerce without making it some form of parody uh, or one of the other protected forms of you know using someone else's trademark or copyrighted material without some some advancement or commentary to it, so that it gets some protections. Uh, First Amendment protections or protections just under the Lanham Act for for a use that's um, that's outside and done for a specific purpose, like an educational message. Um, you know, you you in your Reese's Pieces example, right? you could go ahead and make the Reese's Pieces beer and put on the back that one of the ingredients is Reese's Pieces. Um, if you then turn to try and use the Reese's Pieces on the cover, the question becomes one of, uh, it's, it's real nuance, right? Are, are you using those Reese's Pieces to show people what's in it? Or have you gone and used the Reese's Pieces because they're Reese's pieces and they have a, you know, a certain consumer understanding and cachet that, that you can market on and make money off of. And that's why you've gone ahead and done it. And if you are making money that way, then we say, yeah, absolutely. You owe that money back to, um, back to Reese's. You should have gone to Hershey's. You should have gone and gotten a license from them to begin with, to be able to do it that way. Um, now that's, that's, the legal aspect to it from, from the, you know, the kid from, from Iowa aspect, I'm, I, I think it's all in good fun. And, you know, to the extent you just do it once and you're never going to do it again. And it was kind of funny. I think you're, you're bordering on that parody or that fun stuff. Um, and when it's an homage, I think, I think large corporations are too quick to call their attorneys and try and get it shut down, not understanding that you're part of the fan base and because lawyers get paid to create issues, right? That that somehow someone's gone and said, "Well, gosh, this this small brewer in in Arkansas has sold two hundred bottles of a beer with with George Lucas's face on it. Um, we should really we should really get in there and and bring the the might of a legal team that just to research this probably probably costs more than what that brewer makes in a given year. You know, from from the operation of their brewery. You know, bring that to bear on it." there have been amazing examples of responses that were both apropos and well done, right? There was the Jack Daniels, like, hey, we see that you used our our logo for your book cover. Uh, you basically copied our entire design for your book cover. Please, uh, please stop that. There was the, um, the, the Dilly 
football tickets, the Super Bowl tickets, where Anheuser sent their cease and desist through an actual town crier, a messenger who showed up to, mm-hmm. to proclaim that they were trademark infringing, gave them tickets to the Super Bowl, but you know, did it that way. So you're missing an opportunity if you're a large corporation, someone does this to not at least say, hey, please stop in in a positive way. We've, we've seen that. But yeah, un, under under strict theories of property, 100%, what, what you've done is to take someone else's property and um, without doing it the right way, transformative use, doing something that, that is an educational or uh, some other kind of message, uh, parody, um, something protected by the First Amendment, um, by not doing it the right way and just quite frankly putting the thing on your beer, you're you're in that gray area where no one can tell if you're just doing it because you like you like Star Wars and you're really happy about it, or if you you understand you're going to make a little bit of money because you put Star Wars on this beer. If you're doing it because you think you're going to make a little bit of money because you put Star Wars on this beer, it's exactly what you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you can't really draw that line. Oh, it's as, so hard as, to draw that line. Yeah, Sam. No, mm-hmm. that, that, you're you're entirely right. Like that, that I I have a job because, because it's hard. <laughs> it, it, you get to argue. You get to argue. I mean, there there are we have instances that don't go to court, right? Because they're so easy. Like, yes, you 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 made the sriracha sauce beer, and all you did was copy the sriracha sauce bottle and you put it out there. Like that's I don't know what you were doing, pal, but you're gonna you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna stop, and we may even come after you for cash. You've you've mm-hmm. also got places that are notorious or groups that are notorious for letting some other, and these are usually um, lineage groups like the Grateful Dead who, who let some group or company manage their IP portfolio for them. So, I mean, I, let me tell you, you know, you, you put a dancing bear on a beer, you're going to get a letter and you're going to get <laughs> a demand for money. Not just, not just what we normally think of in the beer world as, all right, I got my cease and desist, I'll stop. What, what, what you get is, uh, no, 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 we intend to exercise our full rights under the law. And we're not just telling you to stop. You're also going to send us an accounting and give us money before we let this go. Um, mm. So, so there, are, there are groups that, that definitely protect their rights and, and take it seriously. And you always hope that you're only going to get the first letter and not the second one. But you can never guarantee that you're not going to get the second one. But the, the, the nice thing is if you can bring it closer and closer to the line of... Yes, there's something about this use that like, it's an original artwork and maybe it's it can be considered a, a parody all in good fun. And I didn't actually use the name of Reese's. I called it Beeses. Um, you know, there, there are ways to, to try and bring it closer to, to the side of, of something lawful and or something that you can actually defensively argue is, is not infringement. But, mm-hmm. you know, the... the the guys who make, you know, uh, I, I have a hard time doing this because the only example I come up with are ones that I've actually done, right? I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to think of other stuff outside. Let's take the Reese's beer. Like if you just mm-hmm. took took the Reese's thing and put it on the label, yeah, that's that's infringement. That, you're not you're not mm-hmm. going anywhere with that. If you take that Reese's logo and put it right on there, and and don't do something else along with it, all you're doing then is using the Reese's name. You put the Reese's in the beer. It's not an ingredient statement. You've actually taken Reese's logo and you're definitely generating sales with it. Mm-hmm. I think one that comes to mind, I can't remember. Uh, it was a pastry stout that a, I think it was a California brewery made. Um, and they used um, that lady from the Great British Bake Off show. Um, what's her name? Uh, 
either way, her name was on it and they sent a huge cease and desist and it was a whole ordeal. And they ended up making, they still kept her name in it, but they made a parody off of it and basically ripped on her, but they couldn't do anything legally, the Great British Bake Off, because they turned it from something that was a sincere like homage to Mm-hmm. her name is going to bother me and then they turned it into a parody nice which i thought was which hilarious beautiful. yeah no and that's the whole point right a parody should be funny mm-hmm. <laughs> or or a scathing critical commentary right it probably <laughs> turned more into that yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 funny is is definitely an aspect to it and and quite frankly the funnier you are and the less likely and the reason we we consider it important typically we assert and understand that the the more funny you are the less likely it is that anyone would take you seriously that you're actually trying to associate your product with with this for sales mm-hmm. um that you're trying to trade on their name as opposed to to making fun of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um another brand from california that comes up a lot in these types of in these conversations is stone and they're uh somewhat aggressive about protecting a number of different either image like logo marks or uh, use of things like stone in the names of other breweries. Uh, it is that too much. I can only think of one lawsuit that you're referring to. Um, okay. That, 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 that is the big one they've been engaged in and they haven't been faring too well because it's a pretty common word to be, to be used and tossed around and every piece of evidence that they've, they've tossed out there is sort of tangential. And, and the idea that, that Molson or Miller is, is really, really had some nefarious intent is just kind of outlandish uh, because Keystone existed and shortening Keystone to stone is, I mean, that's, that's natural. <laughs> that's 100% something that, that you would think about doing at some point. Now, yeah, there's, there happens to be an issue that, that Stone got to the point of potentially being really, really well-respected when, when somebody might have gone back to that marketing campaign, but that marketing campaign had existed for quite some time and even existed back before Stone even existed. They dropped it for a while and then came back. So the, the, the idea that, that there's, there's merit to it apart from potentially Stone wanting to get publicity by, by taking on a big guy and trying harping over and over again about how they think they're getting taken advantage of uh, is a little outlandish to me. But neither here nor there yes they 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 protect it the problem is a lot of these breweries you know the trademark office doesn't operate in a vacuum and know everything ahead of time like there are there are many things that you know it took a while for hazy to become a word that the trademark office would reject as a trademark because it's descriptive of beer so purple haze by abita abita um Mm -hmm. is is sending out these cease and desist letters and challenging people's trademark applications when they call something hazy because they don't want and believe that somehow they've got a right to use the term haze on on trademarks and no one else does and the trademark office thankfully has shot down every one of them but for a while they they took the argument seriously because there weren't that many hazies and then all of a sudden haze became this this thing so um i remember in the briefs and issues for the stone uh lawsuit one of the weird arguments that got tossed out was that you can't trademark stone or you shouldn't be able to trademark stone because people use hot stones now 
to make beer. And the, uh, you know, the, the judge kind of laughed about it and said, well, how many people are doing that? And they had to fess up like, oh, it's, it's a group of dudes on Instagram <laughs> who are trying to revive, you know, this ancient technique. And, and I can't find more than these instances of it. Um, but, but, you know, so, so if it did take off and you, you said, oh, this beer took 10 stones and you started to, to, to talk about beer in terms of the number of hot stones you did, uh, you know, to, to get that kettle going, right. Then, then you could, you could imagine a situation where all of a sudden stone gets diluted to a point that it doesn't really mean and function as the, as the brand anymore. Um, that's not what's going on. That was an argument raised by the opposition, I believe. And it got shot down. But the idea that, that they want to protect their rights doesn't strike me as odd. But the idea that, that they really are going to have to be held to account and prove that somehow this, people are going to confuse Keystone and stone on a Keystone can with stone brewing that's natural to me. And I think they should be forced to prove it if they're going to try and bring it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think like where I kind of get wrapped up with the IP theft or IP situations is a, a little less in the theft or lack of theft or whatever we want to call it appropriation or homage. I think it's more in the question of what does this say of originality? And I think that there's a little, there, there is, there can be originality in, uh, in critique and potentially in homage, but this is this is not just a couple of breweries that are making these beers. I feel as though it may be because sometimes I get wrapped up in the Twitter sphere and they have a dis, they have a disproportionately loud voice, <laughs> but they do exist, and I don't really think that they're going away as uh, terms like collaboration become wider, and we see laffy taffy beers and things like that as well. And the evolution in a longer trend from uh, beers like, I remember Southern Tears Creme Brulee Stout, for example. To me, that was an interesting beer because it actually used mostly beer ingredients to achieve a flavor profile of something that we know from the real world that's reminiscent. And now we've gone from that in a certain way to beers that have creme brulee in them or that may have a specific brand of item in there with the with some nod of the marketing to it i suppose and we can have an open conversation about this is that what's happening to originality with all of this i think that there's a shift mm -hmm. wait um, that's that's not an original idea or the that because you're you're trying to to come up with with recipes formulas that sorry um, um yeah I, I think i'm just con uh 
where I get like a little looped out with this is that um, the use of adjuncts mm. uh, in beers and coupled with the with marketing color schemes wordage on labels is being used for marketing purposes more often than not, as oh, opposed yeah. to people that are actually attempting to make beers that are reminiscent of something. Yes, they are like using the marketing of creme brulee, but that's like a much larger. But they're, they're, they're just well, uh, and, and creme, creme brulee is probably not the right example because creme brulee is is you know. It's it's an actual dessert, and not a brand, right? So so right. You know, I, I can think of the bomb like, pop people, right? Like mm-hmm. or an icy beer uh, with, or the, with like the bear with the color. Cinnabon. Yep, Cinnabon beer. Uh, you know, all all those sorts of things, which gets us right back. And Alexa, you're right. It gets us right back to this idea of, well, wh- why'd you do it? Mm-hmm. And, and if if you if you get into calling it something that directly references the name of the product that you're making the flavor profile for and then use the same color scheme. You're, you're back over the line of associating with the product for the point of economic advantage, which, which means you're, you're going to get dinged for it. Like there's, there's no, there's no if, ands or buts about it, but if you do the, you know, send a bun buns and, put some horrible picture that we used to see from, from the seventies, you know, on the beer, and um, don't use the the Cinnabon colors. You know, you you may have a, an expressive work that, <laughs> uh, that 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 doesn't get dinged, and if you get taken to court, doesn't doesn't get held as as being something that that isn't protectable, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the some of this is also informed by a shift in the in the values of consumers too and people respond differently to uh two beers that have that have the marketing uh the, the marketing being precise and reflective of what's in there and reflective of something that they can immediately recognize right. versus something that may be more vague but uh versus something that may be more vague, vague, but is reminiscent instead of evocative. There's, there's, you know, one, there's a distinction in in what you're talking about between, between flavoring and, and the actual marketing, right? Like Mm -hmm. how heavy is, is the icy going to hit me in this beer? How heavy is the sriracha going to hit me in this beer? How did you get the sriracha? How did you do it? Did you have, you know, were you blending and mixing or you just adding sriracha? Did you take the sriracha spices and come up with the right thing? My, my favorite example of this is actually, it's, it's not tied to a, um, it's not tied to an actual product, but it was when uh, Forbidden Root came out with their, that root beer that they had that tasted like root beer, but was made from, you know, these 50 whatever ingredients that got you to the flavor profile root beer without actually adding root beer syrup. So the, you know they mm-hmm. they never took root beer flavoring and did it. They did it with all going back to it. I know I made fun of it before, but I didn't mean to. Um, I meant to. Uh, botanicals in the mm-hmm. in the in the beer that that got that to happen, which was awesome and a wonderful thing, and definitely a part of the mastery of of the man who put that together. But th- there there is also some kind of 
first mover or, hey, I did it right, acknowledgement and authenticity to people who go out and, and are the first people to partner with Sriracha and get Sriracha to say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll sign a licensing agreement with you and let you put it on the can and then go ahead and do it. The problem is that it's, it's kind of a, a one-off thing, right? And unless somebody is able to do it better the next time, then everybody else is just parting with Sriracha to put it on the can and, and to make more beer um, and sell more beer solely because it's got Sriracha, not because, hey, I had this idea. I really like these guys. Let's partner with them and come up with something that we think tastes awesome. That's going to have some hint of Sriracha in it because we're going to use it. Uh, but but wasn't about just using the Sriracha name to sell beer. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um. Another area that you have expertise in is the is the marijuana industry, and we t- we touched on it a little bit as maybe a precursor to where uh, the three tier system could end up um, in the in the future. Um, Sweetwater uh, was recently acquired by Afria. Uh, a firm in Canada. And I was just kind of, uh, there are a couple things that were interesting about this uh, to me. One was that uh, presumably a free is a great opportunity to produce uh, products with, uh, with THC or with properties that can be sold uh, in a, in the U.S. as soon as it's federally legal, and also in a brewery that has that's large and has capacity and has a great um, a great retail uh, distribution setup, specifically in places that aren't like dispensaries, but that are actual stores. Sure. Um, I wanted to know if you think that we're going to see more of these kinds of things in the future. And what was sort of unique about this deal uh, from your perspective? Well, they, they, I think, I think they, how much was the price? Was it a hundred? It was, I think 300, 300. Uh, so, 300 so the, the, the yeah. pricing was interesting to me because it's, you know, we're, we're getting back down to levels where we're no longer seeing these crazy pie in the sky and potentially unjustified prices for, for breweries, which, which, which is interesting. Um, you know, this is this is something that's going to take off. We we haven't yet had the ability to really experiment and try out and figure out um, emulsification and how we want liquids with THC to interact with. You know what we want from them, how we're going to party with them, how we're going to you know enjoy them, how we're going to responsibly consume. You know these these things. Uh, but it's it's a market segment that doesn't exist, and you hit it on the head pretty much because you know it, it's a it's a food combination, and you know for CBD, not THC, even we don't we don't even yet have guidance from the FDA about how how we put that stuff into into we have we have you know their their offering of guidance that people can comment on and deal with, but it's still you're not going to ship these products across state lines, or you shouldn't be, although many people do direct to consumer, by the way, um, yeah. The, the 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 notion though of THC, which which is you know the a, a different uh, a different beast when it comes to to cannabis regulation, um, being mixed in with with liquids. I mean, I I didn't even see my first chart until about a year and a half ago, 
that, that is sort of explained to me how it is THC mixed in with a liquid would would take you up and level off and bring you down much faster than an edible and you know in, in what kinds of dosages you would have to have to um, have to use to make sure you weren't you weren't going crazy and and just what a different experience it is so by virtue of the fact that it just offers a different experience we're absolutely going to see it come about and exist and people are going to want to try it and I think some people are going to find that they like it much more than um, you know smoking digesting eating uh, you know taking it taking it in a in a, in a different form mm-hmm. um, so the mix between the alcohol side of it and the THC side of it, the cannabis side is just it's a natural one both for the reasons you mentioned and then for for the idea that maybe they bring more knowledge to um, to formulation and not just from a sales standpoint and a you know retail market chain standpoint and and um, you know the the logistics of of getting that beverage out there but but potentially even from from an understanding of what consumer demand is for for flavor profiles and consumer demand is for you know for for how you need to change the the product line over and over again just like you do in craft you know to continually keep a certain segment of of consumers happy about stuff um, they may bring a, a whole version of expertise about about that entire end of the business as well that that we haven't contemplated yet i i, I there's a lot of synergies you pointed out between between these two things, and it's not just because alcohol and THC both both um, you know have these effects. It's it's also because they're they're pretty related market categories. Not because of the effects, but because you know they're they're things that are consumed with flavor, uh, things that are regulated. Um, there are, there are a lot of different ways that these things. I think have have a synergy that works together, but yeah, I, I you already saw the reverse of it, which was you know the constellation brands getting involved in cannabis, all the many of the big beer houses. Although you know I don't think AB InBev has yet um, getting involved in in different segments of the cannabis business. So it was only natural that if one of them got big enough, they would turn around and and want to have a piece of this too. If nothing else. You're a large business that's diversifying, and potentially you're diversifying into something that you already potentially and and understand by virtue of it being close enough to to what you already do. You know, a regulated substance in a regulated space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you foresee the distribution of uh, marijuana following the same model of the three tier system? It's going to take a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that's going to happen. I just think consumers are more savvy and there's already enough of a price markup that they're not going to want to put up with, with a, a middle tier. I mean, there are states that set up, set up a forced middle tier distribution to what end. I don't, I don't know what they were trying to get at. Um, they have antitrust laws. They have massive methods of accounting and tracking that, that involve barcodes and scanning and you know, even monitored monitored you know video cameras for for every place that this thing goes that that do a much better job than than forcing a, a middle tier into the thing um 
So I, I think the regulations will lessen. I think, you know, we're maybe two or three states legalizing it, maybe four away for adult use, um, away from a national consensus that we're going to have to start addressing it in a serious fashion and allowing for interstate sales because there's no reason for the federal government not to put its hand in the box and get some money out of the whole thing. It's just crazy that they they haven't done it already. Um, you know, the stuff's already taxed in a way that that can make it cost prohibitive for most people, which is which has got to come down as well. So this, you know, these crazy schemes about how we how we're going to restrict licenses and deal with stuff, you know, at some point they're going to have to open that market up as well and start to allow for for some some more supply and an increase in competition to try and bring pricing down because you know you've created this thing that say in Illinois instance where where we you know we offer some some favorable points and and a system where we're trying to to reward the disenfranchised uh, you're creating a product that that by virtue of the cost you know they can't always enjoy which is which is really what's what's the balance are you are you helping a few people by virtue of your social equity programs um, you know, obtain these licenses so that they can go out and and become monopolistic practitioners. You know, who, who who gorge on the profits, or or is the goal to actually now make this product affordable and and bring it to the level where everybody can use it, and you decriminalize it and and ensure that that you're you're getting rid of the stigma. Well, if if you do the first one, you're you're kind of hurting everybody else who just wants to buy it and buy it cheaply. Um, so, so there, there are there are trade offs there for things that we're going to have to deal with. But by and large, we're going to see much more of this. And I only say that because I know it's true, because there's none of it right now, and it's just, it's only it's only got growth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I was going to say I think the many marijuana consumers are, uh, as you mentioned, pretty savvy and aware of the cost difference between what they may be purchasing the product for on the black market versus what they may find uh, in a, in a dispensary. And if they break it down to cost per use or cost per dose or what, whatever metric you want to use more often than not, it is cheaper on the, on the black market. Whereas um, it's a different story for alcohol. Right. (laughs) Um, And so Another th- another component to this too that uh, has been spoken about a little bit is uh, the licensing process for these dispensaries in in Illinois. Um, there was discussion in, in the media when uh, when things first came to light that there are only a small number of licenses and they were only available in certain places. Um, is that lessening? And do you think that that's going to then uh, allow this product to be more widely consumed from dispensaries and people may, what would it take to draw people out of the black market? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the goal in Illinois was set up to over the course of three years, bring on more and more licenses and to have a small amount in the beginning to basically allow for us to, to go through this grading system and scoring system um, get those set up and then turn to to the others without having to create this entire giant new regulatory apparatus 
that would deal with all these things. You don't have to go out and hire, you know, 50 new regulators to come and deal with stuff right away. You can actually phase in all the new, all, all the new dispensaries um, and craft growers and uh, even if they, you know, if they do get the new cultivators offline or online, um, the, the, the other reason was that quite frankly, if you're really looking for a system that you're going to reward these licenses to, to people who have been historically disenfranchised, uh, you want them to have, have the opportunity to make some money. And by limiting the number of licenses so drastically, you do at least get to reward the people who got in if they if they were honest about their applications and and really are going to be operators or if they're going to turn around and sell that opportunity, that license for money. You by having a smaller number of licenses, you've by nature of demand increased the price for each of those licenses. So phasing it in over time means that that um, at the initial outset and probably even through, you know, I think it caps out at five hundred. Um, probably even through 500 that you're not going to, you're not going to have so many that you've really decreased the value of these things overall. I don't know. I don't know what 500 looks like, right? I mean, right now mm-hmm. you're like 55 <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so imagine 10 times the number if, if that works. Uh, this, this, this approach is, is well-intentioned. Um, I just don't know if at the end of the day through its application, it's, it's being, it's being, you know, sort of buffeted, uh, because right now you've got, you had so many lawsuits that were filed to try and stop these things. And then this sort of agreed amendment to the scoring process that people are going to go through now where, you know, it was kind of an equal protection violation because one thing they didn't look for in the scoring process was people submitting identical exhibits. And so people with identical exhibits got different scores. And there's no way that that should happen if the rules are locked and the system isn't arbitrary. Um, you also had people not getting notices that they were deficient in their licenses. These are all things that I believe the settlement agreement between the state and the plaintiffs who brought the lawsuit that gets everybody's, everyone who had a deficiency the chance to sort of go and correct it now and try and get into this, uh, into this lottery. Um, that that the lawsuit, you know, meant to address and wanted to address with, with what they had going on. Um, so maybe we just had to go through this process now to understand how to set it up so that the next, you know, 300, uh, end up, end up being done the right way. But if it's going to be this litigious and it, it, it has every right to be this litigious given the dollar value of the licenses, um, maybe the state is better suited to lessening the cost of a license for the social equity applicants um, drastically, I mean, really drastically, and ensuring that they have a chance to go and get one and operate, and then increasing the cost on everybody else, but allowing anybody who wants to get into the game to get into the game. Mm-hmm. Now that, you know, that's, that's another way of going about it. Have you uh, any, uh, any final thoughts to share? Um, I know that I was a little bit monopolistic with the <laughs> with the question, Sam. Uh, do you want to chime in as well, too? No, I just think the like you were saying, I feel like the marijuana field being so young and I view it as an entry point for a lot of people if you know the room is there and you know a lot of the barriers that are set up right now come down and 
I, I just view it as not only good for, you know, local communities, but the government as a whole for all that tax revenue mm-hmm. that would come in. And I, I hope we see in the next three to four years, just a national, national, like, just make it legal. <laughs> and, and, you know, like Washington too, took an interesting stand this election and they decriminalized um, psychedelics and what else? Is that Oregon, right? Was it Oregon? Okay. Yeah, I think it was Oregon. I think, I think Oregon legalized everything. Yeah. Or yeah. decriminalized at least everything. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a great step forward. You know, I think um, a lot of our drug laws in this country are draconian, you know, and they're very outdated. And a lot of alcohol laws are still based on those. Um, well, a lot of the same principles, too, mm-hmm. you know, all these restrictions that are in place. So for me, I'm looking forward to seeing kind of maybe drugs leaping forward as far as legalization and the restrictions coming down. And maybe, you know, in the next four years or five years, once the drug laws kind of become less uh, strict, you'll see a broader spectrum of people being able to buy, like maybe I'll be able to buy Jester King beer and have it shipped with like no, right. no restriction. <laughs> why, why, why should I not get Jester King when, when the guy down the street can buy Coke? For- <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that's, you know, my biggest comment. That's a good what, point. That's that's um, actually, a, you know, that's interesting. <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to. And hopefully we'll no, I mean, see it. Draw the line and the parallel directly to, to or from the, the psychedelics to the decriminalization of marijuana and people's acceptance. You can also thank Michael Pollan in that book on psychedelics <laughs> he wrote, right? I mean, that was, mm-hmm. that was huge in, in getting that going and having people recognize the actual health benefits um, from guided therapy with with psychedelics, which is which is interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I, I I'm looking forward to that critical mass. Which, if nothing else, and people are self interested, you know, if you have 25 states that allow it, then you've got 50 senators who allow it, and and that should hopefully be enough to get you over the hump of decriminalization, if nothing else. So so maybe the, the tipping point has to be 25 states. I don't know. But hopefully it's it's a little bit less than that so we can get to it soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, guys, us thanks for on, having me. This was awesome. Uh, on Heavy Hops, yeah. yeah. Uh, this was great. And I look forward to having a beer with you uh, sometime soon. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. I'll talk to you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Have a good one.